You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back here on Westwood One Network, powered by Conservative Review. Well, it's the midweek crunch in a very busy week. Immigration, jailbreak, big economic news to talk about. Canceling the August recess in the Senate and what it means and what it doesn't mean. Republicans on the verge of supporting another amnesty, which is, especially in today's context, nothing but a handout for drug cartels, Hezbollah, and MS-13. But first, just, just a brief moment. Today is June 6th. Very special day. Now, I think it should be up there almost with July 4th in terms of prominence with maybe a national holiday, the anniversary of D-Day, when General Eisenhower said, we will accept nothing less than full victory. I always thought, just amazingly watching nowadays the aimless war fighting, the aimless missions, how you not only had the greatest generation, the boys from 1944 – that landed on those beaches, you know, from from America at Utah and Omaha beaches, with, with such resolve, um, you know, not not the safe space millennial generation, but you also had an entire nation that had a resolve behind them, almost embedded in the fabric of the souls of the soldiers landing the beaches. They were representing an entire country, an entire country. That didn't have questions about what's a man and a woman, what's right and wrong, what's a criminal and a victim, what's legal and illegal, what's a nation state and what's not a nation state, what's the purpose of America. It wasn't a confused nation. It wasn't plagued by moral relativism. They understood the mission, they understood the purpose, and they understood that they were going to do whatever the heck it took to accomplish it. And they understood that. Even though in a vacuum you could point to these pseudo-compassionate arguments, well, are you killing too much? Are you? Does this need to be done? They understood that that is for God to deal with, but we must do what is just. Only God can do what is purely good. And as I note, this is lost in our war fighting and prioritization of what we should go to war for, and also in domestic policy as well, dealing with illegal aliens and, and criminals. We didn't have this problem back then, but it's just also amazing when you think about just the fact that it's particularly at Omaha Beach, they were plagued by mechanical failures, bad intel, mistakes, terrible weather, bad luck with the weather, um, you know, and nonetheless – and also, by the way, they didn't have the technological advantage that we have over our enemies today, more or less – the hardware, the intel, um, the technology was was pretty much the same on, on both sides with Germany and with Japan and how successful we were. And, and despite you know the 2,500 
fatalities we suffered that day, mainly at Omaha Beach, we succeeded and we freed a continent. And, and really the entire world you know, couldn't sustain itself that way. And we defeated the face of evil. And uh, it's it just, again, it, 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 was, it was such a generation that believed in God's blessing, deserved God's blessing, and indeed received God's blessing for success on that mission. So, you know, ju- just wanted to take a moment to, to remember because it's, it's, it's tough, especially my generation growing up when, when I was a kid. You know, every elderly person, and even not that old, every person you knew was the World War II generation, many of them having served, many of them landed at the beaches of Normandy. And now it's just, gosh, the youngest ones are, are well into their 90s. And there's so few left. Uh, I, I don't have anyone left in my family. My grandfather, great uncle, they've all passed away. Um, my great uncle was at the Normandy beach landings, I believe at Utah Beach. And my grandfather served in the European theater as well. And uh, man, it's just it's just tough. We're, we're, we're losing that connection with that greatest generation. And we need to take the clarity that they had. The moral clarity. You know, I, it's funny. I didn't even mean to talk about this, but every time I get on to either history or, you know, lessons we could draw from history, I, I always have to think of another another angle. You know, I don't know why I'm thinking of this, and I'm forgetting which regiment this was. It, they were Oklahoma boys that, I, I guess this was several months later, almost a year later, when they freed the Matthausen death camp, concentration camp. Yeah, obviously at that time they didn't know what was going on in the Holocaust. And um they just they really didn't know. They they maybe heard different things about it, but but no one ever saw anything like that in human history. And when they got in there, <clears throat> they they immediately saw different things. They saw the Bones and skeletons piled up in the cattle cars. And they saw with their own eyes something they've never seen. And, and you know, there's different accounts of this, but evidently they just went totally berserk. Um, and, you know, and by the way, this happened. This happened many other places. It really, I mean, it happened as they were advancing, just, you know, even not in, in death camps where let's just say they um, <laughs> they didn't follow the, the rules of Geneva. They didn't follow the Geneva Accords. I mean, I know you didn't have it then, but um, although you did have the 1929 Geneva Convention, um. They they would sometimes you have Nazis just surrendering and they would just shoot them shoot them dead. Uh, German soldiers, I mean, they just they just didn't care. Um, and yeah, I mean that's that's what it is. They just didn't care. But anyway, when they got to the death camp, and they just they, you know they were caught up in that moment of seeing the face of evil that you can't even read about much less you know never think you'd see it yourself and they just took a whole bunch of nazis lined them up 
you know, after after they surrendered and just just mowed them down. And you know, there there was some sort of inquiry at the time, but guess who was in charge of it? George Patton, <laughs> and never saw the light of day. And this is how our body politic was. This is how our people were. They weren't bothered by isolated, you know, in a vacuum, is this okay or shouldn't you feel bad for this or what about this illegal alien or what about this criminal? They looked at things broadly as a matter of policy and they understood that things needed to be done. Now, uh, that didn't obviously have to be done in order to accomplish what they did, but it happened Um, and they weren't bothered by it. This This was the morality of our people. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, is a good segue into the thesis of this show, steering Trump in the right direction, how Trump is such a great opportunity, but it also swings against us, and we got to harness it right. And then we want to talk about economic news today. I believe Trump's morality is in line with this. Trump understands this with war fighting. Rules of engagement, criminals, and illegal aliens. And we could harness that. I don't want to talk about his sexual values, how he's lived his life, but, you know, again, it is what it is. And he's president now as it relates to public policy, he has pretty good values on this stuff. Rather than steering him in the right direction, we have the establishment steering him in the wrong direction and downright getting him to go backwards on some of his immigration. And crime promises. And we don't have a movement steering him in the right direction on this stuff. You know, just real quickly, last night we had another election. Big election night. And once again, there aren't many victories. There really aren't. I mean, the best news I could think of is a a George Soros-supported prosecutor or – Someone who was running for a prosecutor position in San Diego County, they pumped $2.1 million. So if you remember, they had the Secretary of State project where they were trying to take over Secretary of State positions You know, because no one focused on them. They figured they can control election law. They're very smart with that. So they're putting a lot of money focusing on prosecutor races to get in prosecutors to support criminal justice reform. Which is now supported by the entirety of the conservative slash libertarian movement. But anyway, Soros did that. So this candidate, despite $2.1 million pumped in, got crushed two to one. So there's a good story. But if you look at Congress, I mean, it's really a mixed bag, and we're really at best holding seats we already had. And we're not advancing. You know, one of the opportunities last night was New Jersey 5. That was a part of New Jersey that was always held by Republicans. Um, a friend of mine, Scott Garrett, a good Republican, it was a heartbreaking, he lost that district um, last cycle, radical leftist Democrat won. So, you know, this is an opportunity, maybe take it back. And there was a primary, and there was a man st- named Steve Lonigan. Now, he's not the greatest candidate, and he's lost a number of races. But he, his heart's in the right place. He's literally one of us. And he would be a vote for everything we want. And it was an establishment guy. And a classic example, this is what happened to Mo Brooks in Alabama, where you have a Cruz guy. He vocally supported Cruz. He said a lot of bad things about Trump in the primary. 
But at the end of the day, he supports the MAGA agenda if that is your goal, whereas the establishment candidate doesn't. But what they did is they ran aids against Lonigan saying, oh, look what he said about Trump. So a lot of voters were like, hey, this is the liberal guy. He hates Trump. Huh? And, and this is the problem. So we lost him. But we're not benefiting from Trump. Where is Trump going in to all these districts where they didn't say anything bad about him and they supported him and the MAGA agenda from day one? Why is he not supporting them and we're losing them like we lost in Ohio? There were two women candidates that were going up against McCarthy-supported candidates, and they weren't even like Cruz types. They, they, I, I would venture to say probably supported Trump from day one, very much kind of more MAGA populist than constitutional conservatives, and he didn't endorse them. Oh, God forbid should Trump go out of the box and endorse against incumbents as a sitting president, but at least do it in open seats. He's not doing it. You know, he didn't endorse against Lonigan, but, you know, he's being used against them. Because, again, the establishment is united and they have a movement to do this, to get the president or get his legacy against our people. But we don't have a movement going to the president and saying, hey, look at these primaries, look at these opportunities. So, really, I mean, all the pukes won. In Mississippi, there was an open seat. The two worst people are going to a runoff. A puke won in South Dakota. Open seat. I mean, I can go on and on. Not much good news. The only good news is that Martha Roby was forced in Alabama, the Southern District there, was forced into a runoff. But she um, she was always very vulnerable. And again, that was partly because she was anti-Trump. That was the big thing. But this guy, Bobby Bright, ironically, the Democrat – from whom she took the seat from, but he was a blue dog. He's running as Republican against her in a primary now, and he won. Well, he won the second slot to take her into runoff. Look, I, I guess at this point, I'd rather Bobby Bright win because I hate Martha Roby so much. But I mean, he he's not going to be with us. He'll just be with the GOP establishment since he switched parties. But we had much better choices there. But you know, he had the name ID from being a Democrat, ironically, for so many years, and and he won. So if this is all about not conservatism but about supporting Trump, why is it we only get the not conservative candidates who support Trump but then don't really support him? It's like Trump is supporting this Donovan guy in in, um, Staten Island and Chris Collins in upstate New York. They're supporters of amnesty. Collins signed on to the discharge petition. Okay? I mean really, really frustrating. Again, we don't have a movement steering the president on primaries saying, hey, this is a MAGA opportunity. Hey, this is not. But anyway, that's with the the primaries. Oh, and by the way, I just want to correct the record as I was talking before. The massacre I mentioned during World War II of the Nazis, it was not at Matthausen. It was at Dachau. Dachau concentration camp it was the 157th infantry regiment 45th infantry division it was lieutenant colonel felix sparks who was in charge and he was he was the guy on the hot seat there um but anyway going back to some more news as i'm talking and it's funny you know i wanted to talk about the economy and i I still want to get to it but literally as i'm talking i'm seeing three things on twitter right now just as i'm talking Another federal judge in Philadelphia says that 
Trump must give federal grants to Sanctuary City, Philadelphia. I'm seeing Jim DeMint, a hero of mine over the last decade, retweeting stuff from Right on Crime, which is really wrong on, on crime, funded by the Koch brothers, uh, how great the First Step Act is when I know he never even read the bill, doesn't understand it. Section 402, I have an article we'll link to in show notes, how it gives an open-ended mandate to pre-release custody for the latter 10% of someone's sentence. Anyone designated is not low-level, but lower-level. And that is all subjective and not defined. And they pretty much view everyone as low-level. And then, relatedly, I see that Trump has pardoned Alice Johnson. We are now officially the party of Kim Kardashian. Let me just give a note on this to both update you on the news, but also to tie into our thesis today, guiding Trump in the right direction. Just three weeks ago, Trump called for the death penalty for drug traffickers. Now, he's not only releasing, you know, commuting this sentence, but at least according to the Washington Post, he's become fixated, quote, fixated on going through the prisons now, finding people that don't really belong there. So in, in other words, the, the premise of the left, the very premise that he argued against his entire career. Now, I, I've put out tons of articles on this recently, just going to my archives, just addressing every facet of this. Let me tell you, this is a perfect example of how Trump has good instincts, but he can go in the opposite direction anytime if you don't have a movement in place Directing him on that. Not only don't we have a movement directing him, Mr. President, could you support Tom Cotton's bill uh, pushing for higher sentencing for fentanyl and heroin traffickers? He supports that, but no one's making that play call. Instead, these very same organizations – by the way, the same organizations that are not making an emergency to seize the both opportunity and challenge from the Masterpiece Cakes ruling – to now push religious liberty legislation in the NDAA, which is happening this week in the Senate, in, in the budget bills, in, in, uh, at a state level, I have an article on where we go from here, nothing. What are they pushing along with the Koch brothers? Prison reform, which is not prison reform, it's jailbreak. It absolutely releases tens of thousands of people. Now, here's what you need to understand about Alice Johnson. Here's what you need to understand. Everyone has what's called a pre-sentence report. On that report, it says their entire picture. Meaning if they really were a low-level, first time, never did anything wrong, just clearly in their life they were desperate for money at that time, but generally they wouldn't be a threat, that would all that entire assessment would be put in that document. Right, meaning there's the legal technicalities of convicting someone for a crime, but then with the sentencing, this is the type of stuff you take into account. That's called a pre-sentencing report. Now, that is sealed. You don't have public access, but the prisoners have the ability to unseal that. Why don't they unseal it? Why, when the media disingenuously gives sob stories, they don't just show us the pre-release sentencing? Let's see it. See, now, now that this person has been let go, by the way, the biggest cocaine trafficker, at least until that point in the history of that district of Tennessee, um, folks, this is the problem with retroactivity. This is why 
we need to oppose retroactivity with full rigor. If you go back in time and you look at someone currently in prison, not responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of people, but you just see them as an older person, a great-grandmother, a great-grandfather, forget about drug trafficking. Okay, let's just put that aside because it's such a loaded term and, you know, so many people have bastardized it to being dishonest that it's somehow low level and the fact that most of these people do armed robbery and other things and they were arrested for other things and drug trafficking itself involves violence and it's responsible for killing twice as many people as car accidents this year. But let's just put let's just talk about murderers, pure murderers. Okay? A good percentage of them, if you look at them 20 years later in federal prison or state prison, I could conjure up a sob story. And you know, on on, on some level, it's true. Some of them, especially when they're elderly, they're not going to go out and murder again. You could say pretty confidently they're not going to do it again. But not just in terms of justice, but also as deterrent, if we're going to make it a thing that we're now going to decrease all these sentencing and have all these leniencies because we feel bad – That's how you get more murder and more crime. You could cry about locking up people, but the bottom line is the murder rate plummeted over two decades because of these tougher sentencing, because of that deterrent. Now, look, the way Trump is going about doing it, and I know pardons have come into the news with the whole controversy over whether – Trump could pardon himself, and by the way, yes, the answer is I believe he can pardon himself. I agree with Mark Levin on that, but Congress obviously can impeach him, and you know certainly once he's impeached and kicked out, then he's not president, and then he could be brought up on charges and whatever. So you know he's not above the law in that sense. Uh, But but I don't mind going case by case. You know, because that's what the pardon power is for. Not to carte blanche say, oh, these categories of people, but yeah, you know, generally speaking, you want certain sentencing, but yeah, you look at a certain situation, I'm okay with that. Now, I would argue it wasn't really designed to let out street thugs. It was designed, you know, like with insurrection. If you if you look at the Federalist papers on this, you know, certain cases of pain in the country. You know, p- picture like, you know, crimes committed during the civil rights era civil disobedience things like that you know you officially let's say i don't know you broke into something while you did that committed you know burglary or something but if you look you know it was during the it was fighting for civil rights whatever um it was at a tough time it was more of a political thing really not just like letting out street thugs but nonetheless that's fine but my concern is Look, you could find one, two, three people you want to find that's fine, but, but I'm just telling you, Obama already did this. He, he analyzed every single person sitting in jail for drug trafficking, prison, federal prison, and he let go like 1,700 of them. And he, did, he opted not to let go this person. But Trump is so impetuous, sometimes for the better, but in this case, like, oh, yeah, she's great. Like, he looks, she's just a grandmother. I'm telling you, I could t- find you a murderer that will look the same way. And maybe they genuinely did change. But this is a contract that someone duly convicted. I don't believe in retroactivity. Fine, if you want to do a one or two pardons, that's one thing. But to go ahead and, um, and uh, you know, continue this nonsense and, and where this is headed 
to, towards is carte blanche creating categories of early release, categories of good time credits, categories of release on home confinement when there's no resources put behind it, and so many have committed murder that way, like the Maryland uh, cop killer in, uh, in my home county a couple weeks ago. It's where this is headed, and no one's steering Trump towards this direction. So that's the problem with this. But I don't want to belabor jailbreak. We'll we'll, we'll touch touch on that more another time. I'm going to link to this in show notes. But um, no, again, no one's giving the president the plays. Why is it that we always get the stinger of the president and not the honey? You know, where the establishment or left-wing groups get a hold of him, but our groups are never getting a hold of him. Well, because we don't have groups. Why aren't they pushing civil rights-style religious liberty legislation? Why aren't they pushing the president to veto any budget bill that does not contain his priorities on immigration? I'm going to talk more about that in the coming days. That's the leverage to getting around this whole discharge petition. Finally, I want to discuss the economy. And again, I want to tie that into what we can and shouldn't be doing, what the, what we should be guiding the president to pushing for in the August recess, and just a broader outlook on the economy, which I think he he you know it would resonate with him. But Trump needs to hear this. And and by the way. Email me at dharwitz at crtv.com. Tweet me at rmconservative. Let me know what you think about this economic theory. One of the things the greatest generation did when they came back after Normandy, after winning World War II, and certainly not to forget about the Pacific Theater, they built an economy more durable than was ever seen in the world since then. 50s, the 60s, the roaring American economy that was, you know, there, there were, you, you did have statism even then, and you certainly did have problems, but, you know, it was by and large a free market. You didn't have the welfare state, you didn't have the dependency, at least, you know, not until the mid 60s, and even then it didn't really kick in until decades later um, in large numbers. You didn't have as nearly as much cronyism and market distortions and economies and sub-economies built off of market distortions, off of market dis- distortions. The economy was very common sense and efficient. Americans saw a need for a certain capital investment, a certain product, and we built it and we did it. And the economy just boomed. And unemployment you know, was, was record low and GDP w- was booming, you know, 5 6% growth. Um, on and off, you know. Obviously, you had a business cycle, you know, in between each business cycle, and 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 again, no matter what, even in the best economy, you're always going to have a business cycle. You're going to have a period of prosperity boom, and then it kind of cools off a little bit, and then sometimes maybe it could stagnate and go up again, or it could go down right into a recession, and then even a depression, and then you have a period of recovery, um, and then it goes back to prosperity, and you know, rinse and repeat. But if you had to look at a trend line from World War II until last decade, we always came out of a recession stronger, and we kept growing and growing on net. It was always certainly growth. 
there's there's something I want to talk about today that's really been troubling me, and I think it's it's to me it's it's such an important concept to understand when you look at our domestic fiscal policies and our budgetary priorities and what Congress is doing and isn't doing and what we should be doing and what Mitch, Mitch McConnell should be spending his August recess doing and what the president should be demanding of him and what conservative groups should be putting on the president's plate. The president promised growth like we've never seen before. And you know he argued that, oh, don't worry about the debt because the debt will be taken care of by the economic growth. The problem is it's the debt that's preventing the economic growth. Now, I don't want to be down on you here. I want to give you amazing economic news. I think there's a lot to celebrate. We are in a boom period. Finally, took forever. Right? It took a full decade to get to a boom after the recession. Never took that long, never since World War II. But from the good news, you see something really bad. It's like if I, if you're like, hey, you know, Daniel, you could punch me in the stomach, see what you got. And I wind up and I do it as hard as I can, and you don't even flinch. I'm like, oh my gosh, that, that, that's the best you can get. That's it. It's not going to get more than that. It's not going to get more than that. And it ties into the thesis I said last year during the whole tax debate that I said, look, I'll take a tax cut any time, and tax cut certainly is a shot in the arm to the economy. It might even push us into a boom period, but it's not fundamentally what's weighing us down, and it's not fundamentally going to solve it. So here, here's, here's the good news. Let's talk about the good news and then how the good news brings in the bad news and, and why it's like that. I want to answer the question today, why is it that the job market is booming and wages are even rising? I mean, job market is booming like we've never seen before, yet GDP growth is still languishing. Right? It's bizarre. I mean, GDP now look, you know, maybe in a couple of weeks I'll be proven wrong. We'll see 4% growth. Now, again, it wouldn't surprise me one quarter. I think even Obama had one quarter. I'm talking about sustained over an annual period. We have not had a year of 3% growth since 2004-2005. We've not had 4% growth since the late 90s and 2000, that year. We have not had 5% growth since Reagan and before that. And, you know, I've been wondering, you know, why is it? Now, it was easy to say until now, we're like, yeah. Because we never recovered. And, you know, basically since the downturn in 2007 and that time period, the economy stunk and we never recovered. But something funny happened. We did recover. So we have, where is this? We had the jobs report. I'm just trying to get you the data here. And, and again, I'm going to have this all. Um, I'm going to have this all published. I don't know if it's going to be today, but you'll definitely have it by tomorrow. A lot of data here. The Bureau of Labor Statistics announced, what, 223,000 jobs were created in the month of May. Unemployment's now at 3.8%, the lowest level since April 2000, the, the end of the you know 
the the tech boom, and, and which in itself was the lowest since 1969. So this is very significant. Meaning, we the level of unemployment we have now is the lowest since 1969. Only um, reached one other time in April 2000. Remarkable, purely remarkable. There's a record 155. Million four hundred seventy-four thousand Americans who have jobs, and it's even more than that. Just over six million people were unemployed. That is the lowest level since two thousand one. And and by the way, that's not. I'm not talking about percentage. That's the lowest raw numbers since two thousand one. And remember, you know the population's grown exponentially. The labor force was eighteen people fewer in two thousand one than it is today, and yet. We have just as few people unemployed, so that's astounding. And in fact, with six million people unemployed, there's now 6.7 million job openings, which in itself is a record. But also, the openings are now outpacing the number of people looking for work. Black unemployment all time low. Rage, wages also, and that was really a big thing. We weren't they weren't rising. Now, I would argue they're still not rising percentage wise as quickly as other. Boom periods with unemployment this low, but it finally is going up. It's it's risen two two point seven percent over the past year. Okay, so in terms of the business cycle, this is clearly the boom. But then that that's the question: Why is it that economic growth, which is two point two percent last quarter, um, last year, if you look over a whole year, we didn't, you know, it wasn't three percent. Just for maybe one quarter. And why aren't we seeing four or five percent growth? If you go back to the, it's amazing. I didn't have time to do a chart on this, but if you go back to other periods of time where we had unemployment plummeting, such as the late 90s, early 2000s, and then to a lesser degree, 2004, 2005, um, the, the 80s different periods throughout the 50s and 60s and even in the 70s before the economic crisis, you see easily 3% growth and a lot of 4, 5, 6% growth periods. Why aren't we seeing that? Why have we gone this long without such growth? Why? Now, the tax cuts are great. The tax cuts put more capital in the economy, and clearly it's working. And by the way, this is a little bit of a side point, but I have this in the piece. I I spent forever going through the Treasury balance sheets trying to just um, look at the revenues and outlays of each month. And the tax cuts are so successful, you're seeing the Lafer curve in front of our eyes that you know the whole rub – so we're not going to give people back their own money. We're not going to cause all these spawn all these bonuses, um, co- you know, corporate expansions, and and again, it's a twofer because the individual tax cut we're giving them more money, but also they're getting bonuses or just higher paying jobs from the corporate tax cut. But no, you can't do it because Daniel, we're going to lose revenue to the treasury. Okay. It turns out. Revenue is actually up this fiscal year. It's up um, for this fiscal year, eighty-three billion, 
Now, when I say this fiscal year, I don't have we don't have the May data yet, but we have the April data. So seven first seven months of fiscal year 2018, that's more than half the year, up 83 billion over last year. 83 billion. Now you'll tell me, okay, but you know, that was September, October, November, December. The tax cuts weren't yet implemented really till later in January. But if you I took just the first four months of the calendar year, which is, you know, January, February, March, April, which is after the tax cuts were enacted, and found that revenue went up roughly fifty billion or four point two percent. Four point two percent. Now I'm not here to tell you that in actuality what's happening and what's going to happen is that not only aren't we going to lose revenue, but downright the tax cuts are gaining money. No. Obviously, some of this is because the economy is better anyway. It was going to be better anyway than it was last year. So always you're going to get more revenue. So you know, uh, my opponents could say, well, relative to the biggest line of what it could have been, maybe we, we lost out. You don't really see that, and it's hard to prove that. But again, it's hard, meaning, of course, no one argues that you're going to lose some static revenue. There's no way you can, especially in the short term. But the question is, all the economic growth and job creation and wage increases that you're going to create, is what's the bang for the buck? Is it worth it? Now, oh my gosh, you're going to lose so much revenue, it's going to collapse. Well, maybe it's not worth it. That ain't happening. That is not happening. And a couple of interesting things, just just to note, I dug into the individual subcategories of revenue tax receipts from individual revenue, from corporate uh, taxation, and from and from payroll taxes. And the interesting thing is, payroll taxes went up twelve billion. That shows you more people are getting jobs. Again, some of that would have happened anyway, but certainly not without the tax cuts, not to this degree. That's pretty clear. You're, you're definitely seeing the tax cuts have a tremendous effect on the job market because you're putting more capital back in the economy. Okay? Um, now, again, it's not that you don't see the effects. You see the effects of the loss of revenue. Revenue for corporate taxes has gone down 30% over this time last year. But revenue for individual taxes and payroll taxes has gone up, and it's more than made up for it. Because remember, the corporate tax, we don't get that much revenue from it. It's, it's I'm forgetting, $200 billion a year we get. It, it, it's worth, I calculated, I have it in the piece, it's uh, something like 9% of the revenue pie. It's really not a lot. So it went down 30%, but we lost 30% of the 9%, and then we you know, gained, um, you know, what, what is this... Uh, 26 billion, or no, it was a 26 billion loss from corporate taxation, but um, individual tax receipts went up 68 billion. Payroll tax revenue grew by 12 billion. So, you know, CBO said we were going to lose just this year alone. You know, the, the lovely CBO, 144 billion next year, 271 billion, and 1.5 trillion over 10 years. That's what I'm telling you. That that ain't happening because of the economic growth. Um, even if you want to say relative, and again, it's hard to prove what it could have been, what it would have been. It's very hard to imagine it would have been that much higher 
Because also keep in mind that although I suspect over time we are going to lose a little bit more individual tax revenue, but it's not going to be nearly as much as they were predicting, we're going to lose less on the corporate side because a lot of what we're losing is that a lot of people front-loaded their deductions because while there was a huge rate cut, but they took away a lot of deductions on the corporate side. So a lot of companies are saddling their deductions on the 2017 tax returns. So, you know, when as they get as they got back the um, tax returns from March and April, both corporate and individual, what you're seeing is a little bit less revenue on the corporate side. It's just because, you know, a lot of them are just taking enormous deductions. That will not be there next year. So that pendulum's going to swing back. So anyway, I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, but the point is the tax cuts are working so spectacularly that they're growing the economy so quickly and the I mean the job market so quickly that it's actually it literally is you know not losing much revenue and in terms of year over year we're actually downright gaining. Um, you know, from last year. Maybe if you say a hypothetical baseline of what it could be if we didn't have the tax cuts, um you know, maybe it would be a little bit more, but then we wouldn't have all this great job creation, which is creating so many jobs and so many more taxpayers. Which brings me to the other side of the ledger. At the same time that revenue is up $83 billion, spending is up $120 billion over the first seven months of this fiscal year relative to last fiscal year. And this is just the beginning. I mean, it's going to be hundreds of billions more by the end of the year and trillions more in the coming years. What do we get for it? Look at the cost-benefit analysis of what we get for tax cuts. Look at what it spawned. What do we get for the spending? Okay, some of it you say we get a military, but you know my other shows on that. Well, what do we actually do with our military? But basically, we just create dependency in Democrat voters. That's what we get for it. We're mortgaging our future for it. Which brings me back to my next question. Why is it that when Reagan did the tax cuts, when Bush did the tax cuts, it spawned, you know, at least in the case of Reagan of Bush, three and a half, close to four percent growth, and the case of Reagan, years of a five percent growth. Why? Why aren't we seeing that now? Let me give you an analysis to where we are now as a boom period in a permanently centrally planned lethargic economy. I have outside my home, I have a really nice pin oak tree, really, really nice tree. And right before we bought the home, the elderly owner didn't know what they were doing, and had someone come and top off the tree. And it just killed it. It was brutal. Just just topped it off. It, it, it stunted it. It permanently stunted that tree. And it really wasn't good after that. And I was, I, you know, when I got the house, I was contemplating uprooting it. But, you know, I was like, I didn't want to uproot it. It was nice having it there. And over time, it kind of came back. But it's interesting. Even at its best period, this is the best it can do. It, it does have nice foliage with along with a lot, a lot of dead parts. The leaves come on 
much later in the season than the pin oak trees of my neighbors across the street. And they're obviously much taller because they weren't topped off, much healthier. And every year, the leaves fall much earlier. And, and they don't really turn nice colors. Like, they just go from green to brown. You could see it's, it's, it's a sign. It certainly does the job. It is awesome now. You know, in May, it's, it's bloomed again along with all the dead branches that I wanted to get rid of, but it cost $1,600 just to do that. Um, but, you know, it has a great use, and it's, it's, I'm thankful for it. I'd, I'd rather have it than not have it at this point. But it is permanently sick. Permanently sick, even at its best time. It's permanently stunted. It's permanently topped off. It will never look like the oak trees of my neighbors across the street. Folks, I'm here to tell you that's what our economy is. If you have tax cuts and any way we're on our way to recovery, any way, no matter what, we're going to have somewhat of a business cycle up and downs, we're at the up now, and it's really good. The job market is great because we have a lot more capital in the economy. But where is some of that capital going? Do we have the capital investments most efficiently steered towards the right plans to grow the economy, the right goods and services, the right plants and factories? Is it based on common sense, supply and demand? Some areas of our economy, like electronics, absolutely. But so many large swaths of our economy, starting with healthcare, going into ethanol and and cafe standards, Dodd-Frank, Sarbanes-Oxley, and no, they did not repeal Dodd-Frank. They repealed 1% of it and called it a day. Didn't even touch the CFPB, which is the worst part of it. The dependency in this country is unbelievable. The dead weight. And all of the money, the debt, going into dead weight. So we have great tax cuts, great job growth, but unlike in Reagan's era where we had a fraction of the dependency, a fraction of the micro um, planning in the economy, the social engineering, the sub-markets. We have venture socialism in this country. So you could find jobs at a boom period, but it's a boom period that's topped off by centrally planned market distortions. I'm not just talking about the regulatory costs. That's true. I'm talking a little bit more fundamental than regulations. I'm talking about market tampering. I'm talking about the Federal Reserve, the market distortions. And like I said, the ethanol mandate. Think about that we have trading credits built off of an ethanol mandate. Why? Is it because the ethanol mandate is so good for the economy? No, it's pure crap. We have economic decisions and capital allocated to things just based on pure politics, not based on common sense. Healthcare, that's the number one poster child. We have trillions of dollars going towards third-party, fourth-party payers and bloodsuckers, not because that's the best way to invest the money, because of politics. So you could find – the thing about America more than Europe is that we don't have socialism, but we have venture socialism. So we'll make a capitalistic scheme off of socialism. Let me give you an example. Let's say government tells me, all right, I'm going to start – the government is going to start funding a program and maybe create mandates and regulations 
to create flatulating parties in your backyard. Jump up and down 10 times and flatulate. Okay, no other purpose other than that. But once the government gets in on it, they're the 800-pound gorilla in the room. They signal market forces. You have the Federal Reserve get involved. You get fiscal policy get involved. That pushes the private economy into it. And you have all sorts of capital investments going into nothingness and emptiness. Now, you could create jobs off of that. You know, this is a little bit more subtle than the analogy of the Keynesian thing of, you know, pure socialism. The government pays a thousand people to dig ditches and then pays a thousand people to fill them in. And they say, oh, look, we created jobs. They spawn private investment, but it's investment in nonsense. You know, we have Medicare going bust, according to the actuaries. Came, actuary report came out yesterday by 2026. That's just in, in, in eight years from now. Medicare program is exactly like that. It's all cronyism. It's all the cartel getting rich off of it. And the circuitous cycle of endless price inflation, which makes you, you know, you have to join Medicaid because what are you going to do? You can't afford it because Medicaid exists. And it gives market share to people that should never have it to price gouge you. So we have both from the market distortion vantage point misallocating capital, but we also have the debt. One of the things conservatives have been horrible about over the years and giving over to people is that, let's face it, people don't care about the future generations. They say they do, but they don't. So you're like, well, you know, your kids and grandkids are going to have to pay it back. Well, after me, the deluge, like Louis the Fourteenth said, you know, <laughs> I don't care. What we've never explained to people is that you don't see it. But hidden in our economy is this massive albatross now, not futuristically. Because of the debt and because of the misallocation of resources and the, the trillions of dollars being pumped into treasuries to service nothing more than market distortions and dependency and Democrat constituencies and votes and political nonsense rather than efficiencies and great inventions – Guess what happens? You have dead weight. So even so now you're going to have a business cycle. You're going to have bad periods where it's not working and good periods where people are working. And the best period is, is now when the record number of people are working. But there's a difference between me going to the bank to deposit my check to jumping up and down 10 times flatulating, going to 7-Eleven for a Slurpee and some and eventually getting there. That's what our economy is like. You know what our economy is like? I think of it, it's a step backwards. You know, you know, they talk about energy efficiency, you know, products that become more efficient. Now, let me get to this in a minute. There's something to be said about this with quality and whatever. Um, but at least on the efficiency side, I think I just want to narrow that out for an analogy here. Our economy right now is like, a 1980 air conditioner rather than a 2018 air conditioner. Just don't want I want to get to the quality, but just look at the efficiency. If you want to just say like the energy efficiency, you know, where we're getting the bang for the buck. The capital is going to where it needs to go because common sense market forces dictate where it should go. Look at such massive, powerful swaths of our economy, and that is not happening. 
That is my theory. That along with the debt. I believe with the debt like it is, you want to know, you know, when are we going to pay? Everyone's wondering like, hey, man, we're getting away with murder with this debt. You know, we haven't had to pay the piper. First of all, the interest payments are net. Now we are with the interest rates going up. We're done. Um, but it's not true. You want to know why we haven't had 3% growth in 13 years. Folks, that's why. Now, I could be proven wrong. Maybe the economy is so good. Maybe I believe we're going to get to it for a couple quarters. I'd be surprised if we get there for a full year. We're certainly not going to see 4%. I'll eat my hat. I'll get on here and eat my hat if I'm proven wrong. And this is not a rub on Trump. I'm saying what he has dealt with is no matter what he does with taxes and even on the regulations, you know, he's doing what he can executively, but it's not the core stuff. It's really around the edges. And and more than the regulations, it's the market distortions that it creates that we need to address and the government programs and the, and the private venture socialist monopolies it creates. This is what we need. The tax cuts were a smashing success. But again, it's like my topped-off tree. My theory is we have a permanently topped-off economy. You know, And this is what Mitch McConnell needs to be doing every day of the week in, in August. Don't just pass budget bills as a process. It depends what's in the budget bills. If you're going to pass the budget bills that codify the omnibus levels of spending and debt and interest on the debt, then screw it. What's the point? And that's what they're doing now. And this gets me back to immigration. Trump needs to demand a DHS bill passed during recess to fund all his priorities, period. Or threaten a veto otherwise. But this is what Trump needs to realize in the economic agenda. You can't say I'm going to grow my way out of it. I can't have my oak tree grow its way out of being fatally topped off. Now, I guess, you know, biologically, there's no way to reconstitute that. But I believe in our economy, there is. You know, just just think of the Federal Reserve. I call that the opioid crisis of our financial markets. Monetary morphine, as as, uh, um, former Dallas Fed Chair Fisher used to say. And he was so frustrated with it because he warned last decade. He said, Through, because of nothing more than politics and the desire to service debt and Democrat voters uh, votes on the cheap, we artificially hooked the economy on low interest rates. Not because market forces dictate that. It was all politics. There's something wrong when our economy can no longer sustain – having the treasury note rise above 2.7%. There's something wrong with that. And this is a looming albatross. It's it's certainly killing the stock market and not allowing us to benefit from what should be a better year thanks to the economy and the tax cuts. But, you know, the stock market's kind of its own casino. I'm talking about even fundamentally the regular economy. Fundamentally the regular economy. Could be doing so much better. But my fear is that because it's doing better, the feds are going to finally raise interest rates, and they are. And that's going to hurt the economy. And it, it shouldn't. In a healthy economy, it shouldn't. But it does because it's there. 
The same reason why you should be able to afford medical care with a catastrophic affordable plan and paying the rest out of pocket, but you can't because it doesn't exist because of Medicare, Medicaid, and the tax um, tax system that that it, that funnels so much money to the cartel. You can't. This is what we need to address. Right now, it's fine. The economic growth is decent. But dude, if at a time of 3.8% unemployment where there literally are more jobs than, than people looking for jobs, if the economy is only growing in the 2 2.5% range, you better wait for what happens when the business cycle turns back, which no matter what, it will. That's the problem. You want to have your 4 or 5% years of growth while you have the opportunity. So when you have the contractions and then the 1, 2% years, you know, on net, you're, you're, you're doing good. So this is my economic theory. I'm curious what you guys think. Um, I'm about out of time and out of air. Tomorrow I'm going in to uh, meet with some members of Congress to fight fight the coming amnesty and promote strategy to promote the president's promised campaign agenda on sanctuary cities, on getting the judiciary out of immigration once and for all, on the border wall, and more importantly, interior enforcement and stopping this invasion of our country with bogus asylum and refugees. He's, he's, he, he's being ill-advised on this. He needs to harness the veto in the budget bills, not, not ask for a new piece of legislation, compromise with amnesty. It's never going to work for him, and he needs to start implementing administratively what he can. Folks, we need solutions. We need solutions. And by the way, I got to tell you guys this. I I fear that we are headed, and it's already true, between the criminal aliens, MS-13, open borders, Hezbollah at our border, um, all sorts of criminal problems and jailbreak. I believe we're going to have to suffer from another epidemic of crime. To, before we stop this jailbreak agenda that that's what i fear it, it is so it is so one-sided and so strong it, it, it's gonna be tough to stop this is why you guys got to keep yourself safe government is not fulfilling its social contract to keep you safe this is why in states where you're still free to carry you need to have a good holster if you want to support a company that loves this show and our values, is a sponsor of the conservative conscience, is being censored by social media to promote their products, to promote the the Second Amendment, and have yourself a custom-made, best quality, inside the waistband, outside the waistband holsters with every part, the cant, the ride, the tension screw, adjustable, perfect balance of security and versatileness that you could just draw very easily. I use my VP9 um, outside the waistband holster at the range for draw shooting. 
um, but certainly great for concealed carry as well. Holster start at $34 bucks a pop, but you get $10 off with promo code CONSERVATIVE. Go to We The People Holsters, wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash conservative. Get 10 bucks off your first holster. That would be just $24 and free shipping. Free shipping. That is a really good deal. We The People Holsters. I just want to end with this point. You know, I'm watching David French of National Review, and I pick on him because I think he's the best of the lot. He's he's a genuinely very decent man. There's a guy later in life that, um, because of 9-11, signed up to go to Iraq, and and you know it wasn't paperwork. He he fought in in combat, um, very dangerous areas. You know he 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 means well. He's a great patriot. I just think he's fundamentally injected with this disease that our conservative movement is that he's written like five different posts trying to defend why the masterpiece case Kennedy really did us major favors. And I'm thinking, what is your point? Look forward. Even if you're right, obviously I disagree, but it proves my point. And this is the article I wrote. I'll link to in show notes. How to make masterpiece a, a true victory. Use the momentum and push legislative solutions, budgetary solutions to, to promote this, and I have solutions. We need people telling the president to do this. He's not going to do it on his own. He's not going to do the right things on immigration on his own. He's not going to do the right things on crime on his, on his own. He's not going to do the right things on the economy on his own. Not, not more than conservatives are willing to push for, but he's willing to listen. Why can't we get in his face? But we don't. We have our guys pushing the opposite. These very same conservative, social conservative groups, not a single one of them is pushing for judicial reform. I wrote a very long article explaining the need. We're at the cusp of another Obergefell on on religious liberty. We're like between Windsor and Obergefell now. Let's not repeat the mistake of being complacent and just, oh, the courts will save us and the courts are the problem. Let's push this legislatively, both in state legislatures and in Congress, while we have the chance. We need to be forward-looking. Despite my pessimistic outlook on a lot of things, I'm always going to be forward-looking and always coming up with solutions, even if we're the only ones saying that. Anyway, we're out of air. We're out of time. Thanks so much for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.